0: it June 8th, 2020, Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra, and I apologize if that intro did not come through as enthusiastic as previous weeks because, you know, it kind of sucks when you record and I'm putting record in quotation marks, your entire monologue, and then realize that you didn't actually hit the record button. So that was my actual second attempt on that. So finally, I get to record it. Sorry if it's not as enthusiastic, but if you got to go through the entire monologue again, you can kind of see where I'm coming from. Hope everyone had a good week outside of podcast land. You know, it's been a heavy week. I hope everyone is safe and healthy. And doing okay and and with your loved ones Uh, and if you're alone you know you you call that battle buddy that you haven't talked to in a while heck you can even write to me at podcast at va.gov you know we're we're all in this together a lot of feedback on brian burgeon's episode on the episode's blog on blogs.va.gov uh concerning the va home loan questions one resource I did look up was the VA home loan toll-free number, which was 1-877-827-37. There you can speak to a VA home loan representative. These are VA employees that work in the VA home loan guarantee program, and they can answer any questions that you have about the VA home loan process, or if you need to refinance, or or if COVID-19 is, is you know putting it hurting on you. They're there for you. Again, their number is 1-877-827-3702. And their hours of operation are 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, if you go to that blog, just go to, you know, just go to blogs.va.gov and search for Born in the Battle 196 and click on the first blog that pops up. In the comments, I put a link to all the contact information for all the regional loan centers. There's emails, mailing addresses. Uh, Fax numbers, every way to contact them is on there. Uh, A couple ratings. One review came in at the time of this recording. This one is from M.W. Fredericks. Uh, Five stars. Appreciate it. Says, awesome. Some of the best information out there in the veteran sphere. Uh, M.W., thank you for letting other veterans know that there's actual information in this podcast. Uh, Well, uh, you know, as much as I can find from week to week. Uh, And thank you because your review on Apple Podcasts boosts us up in the algorithms and makes this podcast more visible to veterans in an ever more crowded podcast ecosystem, especially in the in the veteran space. So definitely appreciate it. Okay, news releases. looks like we're going back to having a bunch uh, as we got five this week. First one says for immediate release, VA conducts deep dive study into effects of covid-19 on veterans. On May 28th, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs began a national four-year study on the impact of COVID-19 on veterans to help address critical questions about the disease. Known as EPIC-3, which is, stands for Epidemiology, Immunology, and Clinical Characteristics of COVID-19, researchers will study throat swabs and blood samples to learn how the virus that caused COVID-19 has affected veterans. The study involves veterans infected with COVID-19 and those who have recovered or who may be at risk but have not been infected by the virus. They are volunteers who are inpatients, outpatients, and residents in VA's community living centers. Each cohort consists of hundreds of veterans. A similar study is being conducted by the Department of Defense involving active duty service members. At the end of their respective studies, VA and DOD researchers plan to compare findings from the two study groups. To learn more about VA research, visit research.va.gov. All right, and the second one says VA resumes in-person compensation and pension exams at select locations. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently it will resume in-person compensation and pensions, otherwise known as C and P exams, in select locations across the country. The VA Veterans Benefit Administration's contracted medical examination providers immediately began contacting veterans in select locations with claims pending C and P exams to schedule exam appointments. Safety measures include COVID-19 screening for veterans and employees, physical distancing, and appropriate personal protective equipment to include face coverings and gloves. VA is working closely with its medical providers to ensure the safety of veterans and providers remains a top priority. VA expects to start conducting in-person exams within the next few weeks based on the availability of veterans in the following approved locations. White River Junction, Vermont. Syracuse, New York. Erie, Pennsylvania, Huntington, West Virginia, Danville, Virginia, Charleston, South Carolina, West Palm Beach, Florida, Johnson City, Tennessee, Cleveland, Ohio, Toma, Wisconsin, Shorewood Hills, Wisconsin, Kansas City, Missouri, Little Rock, Arkansas, San Antonio, Texas, Fort Harrison, Montana, Seattle, Washington, Boise, Idaho, Las Vegas, Nevada, Tucson, Arizona, and Fargo, North Dakota. Veterans outside of these service areas will continue to be served through telehealth appointments or the acceptable clinical evidence process, which includes a review of existing medical records to provide information needed to complete the claim whenever possible. Veterans within resumed service areas who do not yet feel comfortable receiving in-person exams may opt to schedule their exam for a later date without impact to the disability claim. No final action will be taken on a claim while a required in-person exam is pending. VA expects to expand the list of available locations as conditions allow with guidance from various agencies that drive decision-making. Okay, the next one is pretty interesting. Uh, It says, for immediate release, VA to begin legal process of replacing three German POW headstones. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently it will initiate the process required by law to replace three German prisoner of war headstones in national cemeteries in Texas and Utah. The headstones are controversial because they bear swastikas and other symbols and texts related to the Nazi regime that millions of Americans fought during World War II. The headstones mark the graves of prisoners of war and are located at sites and cemeteries protected by the National Historic Preservation Act, consequently under NHPA. VA is not permitted to unilaterally remove them or alter them. However, later this month under Section 106 of the NHPA, VA will begin taking required steps including consultation with stakeholders about how to replace these headstones with historically accurate markers that do not include the Nazi swastika and German text. The German POW headstones are located in Fort Sam Houston National Cemetery in San Antonio, Texas, and the Fort Douglas Post Cemetery in Salt Lake City, Utah. The cemeteries were under the control of the Army when these interments occurred in the 1940s. The Fort Sam Houston and Fort Douglas cemeteries were subsequently transferred to VA's National Cemetery Administration in 1973 and 2019, respectively. Once replaced, VA will propose to preserve the headstones in its National Cemetery Administration history collection. VA will also install interpretive signs at all VA national cemeteries where foreign enemy prisoners of war are interred in order to provide historical context about how non-U.S. service members from World War I and World War II were interred and buried on American soil. Very interesting. Okay, the fourth one, it says, for immediate release, VA and Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation deliver cancer care to veterans via tele-oncology. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced that it is teaming up with the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation to build new programs to enable VA oncology specialists to provide veterans access to precision cancer care, regardless of where they live. The foundation has committed to providing VA $4.5 million in grant funds over three years to help establish a national tele-oncology center to more effectively reach veterans living in rural communities. Veterans enrolled in VA healthcare are two and a half times more likely to live in rural areas where access to specialty care is limited. The program will support the delivery of best-in-class care, education, and practice in collaboration with VHA's existing Precision Oncology Initiative, which has had dramatic impacts for some veterans and will now be available to all veterans with advanced cancer. The tele-oncology program paves the way for VA and the Bristol-Myers Squibb Foundation to enhance the capabilities of VA's video connect. Which is a platform that allows veterans and their caregivers to meet virtually with their VA healthcare teams on any computer, tablet, or mobile device with an internet connection. VA Video Connect is currently responsible for conducting more than 20,000 virtual appointments each day. Veterans interested in participating in VA's teleoncology services should consult with their VA healthcare team. For more information about VA telehealth, visit Care. That's all one word connectedcare.va. Gov. And finally, it says for immediate release, VA names new National Cemetery in rural Wyoming. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently that the name of the new VA National Cemetery in Cheyenne, Wyoming will be, you guessed it, the Cheyenne National Cemetery. It goes on and says there are currently over 56,000 veterans within a 75 mile radius of Cheyenne. The closest burial option is Fort Logan National Cemetery, which is located 114 miles away in Denver, Colorado. And the only in-state veteran cemetery is the Oregon Trails Veteran Cemetery run by the state of Wyoming, located 176 miles away in Evansville. VA relies on local veterans and community leaders to submit name suggestions for new VA cemeteries. Of the names submitted, Cheyenne National Cemetery, which was nominated by several veterans groups, best met VA's naming criteria and is consistent with the requirements relating to naming department property, including national cemeteries, to be named for the geographical area in which the facility is located. Uh, a little bit of background, VA purchased the five acres located on Hildreth Road near the Department of Agricultural Research Station in January of 2017. Cheyenne National Cemetery is scheduled to conduct its first interments close to this year's end. The first phase of the cemetery development will have the capability for over 1,600 grave sites. For more information about Cheyenne National Cemetery, contact the National Cemetery Administration Office of Public Affairs and Outreach at 202-632-8035. All right. So we know a lot of people are out of work. You know, last count I saw, uh, there's currently a – over. 13% unemployment rate with over 40 million claiming unemployment benefits, which, you know, is historic, which is a historic rise during COVID nineteen. And we know included in that number are are many of our veterans, you know, and, and I'm sure many of us know some folks that are unemployed that we served with. So on top of getting to know our guests this week, we're gonna be talking about the current employment state of the country. And I think he's a good one to to talk about it. Uh, This week's interview is a Marine veteran, and he's currently a senior manager on Amazon's military talent acquisition team. He is a Marine veteran, Bo Higgins. Enjoy. We're going to start the interview like we start every interview. Um, When and where did you figure out that the Marine Corps was the place to be? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um
1: so my dad was a Marine. Um I, now it was before I was born. He he enlisted um but I always grew up hearing stories about the times he had with his friends in the Marine Corps. So I think it was always mm-hmm. a, a seed that was planted in the back of my head. Um but I didn't really pursue it and I'm I was literally gra- getting ready to graduate from the University of Virginia. Uh so it my last semester of college and I saw a recruiter a Marine recruiter standing outside the bookstore. And I went up and started talking to him and, uh, and it just kind of the spark got lit pretty quickly at that point. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I did know what I, wanted to do, what I wanted to do when I was leaving college. Um, I knew I didn't didn't want to go back to school. The job market wasn't that great, and the Marine Corps just became this thing that, I, you know, it was. I think it was something that always had been there, and just that that spark kind of got lit um, when I when I saw that recruiter in his dress blues, and, and the rest is history, as they say.
0: So you were basically looking at your dad, always kind of had that idea, look, always looked up to him in that way, and then you saw that, and you were like, all right, green, that that that's a sign. That's it. I, to- I totally
1: saw it as a sign. And I, it was one of the things where I, I thought I'd do it for three and a half years and come back and get my MBA. Uh, but, you know, I ended up falling in love with it. And uh, it just became
0: a, a lifestyle that for me was exactly what I needed. Gotcha. you said uh, University of Virginia? Yes, correct. I, I will not hold that against you. My wife is a, uh, was, was a hokey for. ah oh,
1: tough uh, tech, man. I got <laughs> hey. Th- this is, by the way, we are the, uh, the reigning two-year champs of, and uh, in basketball, in, you know, but the year canceled this year. I, I like to claim that we're two years <laughs> running national champions in basketball. So that's a, uh, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing
0: coming out of the ACC, for, by the way. Uh, I know. I know. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> amazing. Um, so, it's great that I, I saw in your bio when you sent it that you were an Intel officer because I was an Intel Marine for about all of seven months in Iraq. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I landed in 05, in uh, I was admin. I, was, I worked in an S-1 and they had too many admin Marines. They said, hey, do you want to work in an S-2 for seven months? I said, yeah. So, I got to use you know the Blue Force tracker and all that stuff for about seven months. So, so when I saw that, I was like, oh, very cool. Intel Marine.
1: Yeah, it was great. I, you know, it's uh, it's one of those things where you, you I, I didn't know what I was getting into necessarily, and they say it's the the ultimate oxymoron, marine intelligence, right? But uh, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, we I was, like cram. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, I, I was a, I was a signals intelligence guy, right? So you know, the Marines that worked for me were really the smart folks. I mean, they were the linguists, they were the Morse code operators back in the day. Okay. Um, they were the ones that could do the signals analysis, and and later on, as we got into more complex signals, they they knew how to intercept it. And, you know, my job was to make sure they were trained up, man trained and equipped to do what they had to do. So, um, but they they were the smart guys. So, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure being in that field and which led to later on, you know, um, being able to have a tour at National Security Agency, um, you know, a lot of time in the DC area and, and and doing some cool recon things later on too. It was great.
0: You know, I, d- I didn't really know what all went into signal intelligence. Uh, but a good friend of mine from high school, his name is Bob Sterling. He was the guy that joined the Marine Corps after, I mean, you talk about the smartest, the smartest, uh, he went to Dartmouth for business, uh, yeah. from, from, and we, and we went, we were from a small town in Washington state. And then he went to the university of Washington, uh, school of business, did the corporate ladder for, for about three or four years. And then he just turned around and joined, enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, he was one of the linguist Marines. He, he was a Korean, he did, he, then. He, you know, he's like a paley white guy like me too. Um, <laughs> but he learned Korean, you know, <laughs> and became a Korean linguist. Uh, and he was, uh, and he was the one that actually referred me to. He now works for Coke Industries, and he referred me to the Coke uh, Military Affairs team. But no, the linguist guys—I I didn't know that all that went into that. So that's pretty incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, they're amazing, amazing guys. Um, a lot of these folks, you know, most of them don't have the language as a as a, as a first language, right? They they go to uh, DLI and Monterey. Oh yeah. Tough duty, and then, tough <laughs> duty. Yeah, exactly, Monterey. I know it's horrible. Uh, but again, there's I mean, a lot goes that goes into it. It was, it was, in, it was a, a field that was certainly always the thing I liked about it the best. Is I, you know, as an intelligence officer. What you do is always topical, right? I mean, you're always tracking the latest news around the world, globally, and the impact it could have, and and what was there a military slice to it? So, again, I think that made the job, at least for me, it made it fun because you knew it was always relevant. Um, There was always something new going on. Um, You you know, it it didn't always have to have a, a military element of it, but at least you were aware of it and the commanders wanted to know about it. So, uh, it was again, to me, it was a great, end up being a great field.
0: Absolutely. What, what year did you join? I joined in 90, February 90. 90. So, uh, looking at your bio, it looks like eight total in-country deployments, um, Somalia, Bosnia, three times to Iraq, three times to Afghanistan. Uh, my first question is, are, are you married? Uh, yes. uh, yeah. My, my, my wife is the true hero uh, of the
1: family. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's I, I, I joke, you know, it's, it's the Marine Corps. It's like it's like being a football player. Right. If you're a football yeah. player, you don't want to be on the bench. You want to be in the game. And in the, in the Marine Corps, we just play all away games. That's the problem with the schedule. It's all away games, you know. So but you want to be in the game. You don't want to be back in the States if you're in the. You know, you don't want you don't want to be on the bench. You want to be in the game.
0: And thank so, God we have away games, you know, can you imagine exactly. having a game here in the, here in the country? Mm-mm. No way. A hundred percent. A hundred
1: percent. So, I was happy to do my part and uh, and yeah, my wife is definitely the hero that was holding it all together back home. No doubt about it. <laughs> now, uh, did you go to Somalia as part of
0: uh, Restore Hope?
1: Well, I did. Yeah. We, we were, we were, I was on, the, I was on the Mew um, and went into, went into Somalia. Uh, we weren't the first uh, folks in. We kind of came in. The, the West Coast guys were in there first, and we got there uh, on the on, on two form. You came in a little later on. Uh, it was before the Black Hawk
0: Down, you know, incident happened. But it was a it was a crazy time. You get the text right in the very beginning, but you never get that part of the story.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it was it was it was a hunger relief mission that turned into, um, you know, warlords and, and violence that were basically, you know, keep, people were starving over that. that's what it started with, and it, and it turned violent, and they needed someone basically to be the the brokers to f- help still feed people and not yeah. let the warlords take over, and, and you know, and uh, you know, it, just, it was it was an ugly situation that got worse. Uh, And it's still bad. That's the thing. It's still it's still going on today. Um, It's you know it's it's not it's one of those things where it's just lawlessness, tribal. Um, It's similar, probably similar to Afghanistan in some ways,
0: like that. Absolutely, and I think another underrated conflict that folks back home really don't understand the impact was the breakup of Yugoslavia. Cause it says, it says Bosnia. I'm assuming that was the nineties as well. Correct. Uh, you know, I don't think, I don't think people here understand what that meant for that society. I'm, I'm Croatian by, by three generation Croatian, you know, three generations yeah. in America. But so my grandpa would talk about old, the old country. He was the first person to ever be born in America, but his great, great-grand- my great grandfather was from there. So I always took an interest in that in that area, and and just watching that in the '90s, I don't think many people understand what happened.
1: Yeah, you know, it was sad. it was you know the breakup of the Soviet Union. You had back in the day, post post World War II, you had Tito was able to kind of be this strong influence, I was able to keep together very um, varied uh, disparate groups, that included the Croats and the Serbs and the Muslims, and you know Yugoslavia was a a creation. Um uh, on a map that brought together folks that you know didn't had previously never been joined. you know, so there was there were un, you know years and years, hundreds of years of of history. But he made it work for a while. You know? and,
0: and Slavs hold on to that history.
1: Forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is, it is never forgot. And, and the tough thing for an American going over there is like, I can't, I couldn't tell the difference between a Croat and a Serb. It looks like they, they'd been neighbors. Yeah. they have been living together in the same neighborhood for years. And all of a sudden, they were killing each other. You know, I mean, it's like, it was just, it's hard to fathom that they could, the, 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 lep, the depth of the, of the fighting and just the atrocities that were going on. It was like genocide. I mean, it was bad. Um, And you're right. It's under, I think underappreciated here in the States. Um, But yeah, there was just a, a long, you know, running hatred that would, that kind of, you know, was able to kind of, foment under nationalism, and uh, you had the kind of the three groups: you know, the Croats, the Serbs, and the Muslims, kind of stuck in the middle, the Bosniaks. So it was a, it was a it was a very f- fascinating, sad situation. Certainly, that's a place where I think we've done a pretty good job to stabilize it, more so than others over the years. But I um, mean, again, those ethnic tensions are something that's you know that's a they they never go away. They're always under the surface somewhere.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I had a topical understanding of it uh, growing up, you know, my grandpa a, a little bit, but one of the last gunnies I served with Gunner Sergeant Hadzik, he was an 3 He was a, he was a grunt, uh, but he was the first Bosnian refugee to serve in the Marine Corps. Hmm. And I need to get him on to really help tell that story. Cause I think it's, it's something that's underappreciated. A hundred percent, hundred percent. Six times Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I'm not going to go into each one, but what sticks out the most out of those deployments?
1: I think the the very first one. So I was on 15th Mew and we were actually um, in Australia on 9-11. So we were we were wrapping up our oh, yeah. training mission in, uh, in in northwestern Australia, and 9/11 happens. Um, it's it's the evening in Australia. We had just finished up, actually playing rugby that day, um, when you start seeing it, you know, in, in the bars in, in Australia on TV, what had happened, and and we obviously, as with anyone, no one knew what had happened, um, but we knew something. We knew our lives, especially being on the Mew in kind of the you know, the nation's nine one one force, we knew that we were gonna be called to action in some variety. Yeah. Um so that was uh that that led to interesting, you know, this is September eleventh, we're in Australia. We got into country in Afghanistan by November. Um, in the in the meantime, we actually did a humanitarian relief mission in East Timor as we're kind of figuring things out because everybody was figuring no one knew exactly what to do right away. Right. We didn't know. It took a while for that intelligence picture to to kind of paint itself um, yeah. and for the, you know, for the response to be generated. Um and for the Marine Corps, it was it was very unique. You ended up having at the at that same time, you had General Mattis and um, the Marines from the MEF were over doing Operation Bright Star in Egypt. So that, you had this task force. That was already in place in the Middle East that became kind of the the leadership for bringing together two Mews, a West Coast Mew and an East Coast Mew. Um, Interesting. And we both rolled in to Afghanistan. So, we, our, our Mew rolled in um, in mid November to Afghanistan, the largest, longest ship to shore movement in Marine Corps history. So we flew, you know, ashore all the way into Afghanistan. It was crazy. Um, and C- Colonel Waldhauser, who had, our, our MUCO, ended up being a four star. General Waldhauser, great guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, but yeah, but it was, it was it was really interesting to be in country then, as people were trying to figure stuff out too, because you didn't have this established command structure of who was in charge. And it was, it was interesting. Just, I mean, you could, you could get stuff done with a lot, without a lot of bureaucracy. It was, it was kind of nice.
0: Just figuring it out on the fly there. It out on the fly. Yep. Absolutely. But yeah, that,
1: that was, uh, I, I think that, that, I say that deployment just because the whole country was behind you. It was one of the greatest deployments of my life, again, because of the team we had built, um, because of the nation behind you, and because of the success we had, you know, to to see the Taliban, um, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda al- backed, backed Taliban kind of collapse. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a fantastic um Again, for me, really truly a pinnacle of the three tours in Afghanistan, three tours in Iraq, that was by far the best just because of the camaraderie. The country behind you and the success of the mission. You felt like you really went over there and and were successful. I think you got to worked for guys like General Mattis, who was fantastic, and the, some of the leaders were also amazing. So yeah, it was a, it was a great. You know, I, I, hate, I hate to say it, but it was, a, it was a great time. We also had a USO show. We had Wayne Newton and Drew Carey came at Christmas, <laughs> flew wow. in to the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. Drew Carey, Wayne Newton, and uh, and uh, Dallas Cowboy Cheerleader. I'll never forget it. Great great times.
0: This is before all the buildup and everything. Wow.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, like I said, this is uh, 01. So uh, December of 01, they came for a Christmas show in the in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. So
0: funny, <laughs> it's funny, what you remember. Definitely, a, definitely a sense of purpose, and you actually got to see results. That's good to yes, hear. Yes, exactly. You also had the opportunity to command First Recon Battalion, Second Marine Division at a Camp Lejeune. That had to have been a good command to 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 get to get.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh! It was unbelievable. You know, I was a, you know a signals intelligence officer, um, an intel guy. I was not. I did not have a, a true recon background. Although I had done um, some radio recon work back when I was lieutenant, and you know had you know jumped out of airplanes and that kind of thing. But yeah. you know, to lead a unit like that is uh, is amazingly gratifying. I mean, you're surrounded by you know type A personality plus. <laughs> that are the best of the best trained in the Marine Corps, you know. And my job was to make sure I didn't get in their way, you know. I mean that was really kind of how I viewed it. And and uh, <laughs> what do you need? What do you need? What can I do I, for you? Seriously, I mean, you know, it's uh, how, how again? How can I make sure that my Marines are man trained and equipped to be successful, you know? And yeah. and uh, and take care of them, and and and, and remove barriers for their training. Um, and then we, you know, we deployed over to Afgh- to Iraq and had a very successful deployment. It also, a strange time. You know, we were there from March of 2007 to um, to September of 2007. So it was kind of the, the peak of the surge, if you will. And and you yeah. know, it went from where you couldn't walk down the street in Iraq without getting shot at Fallujah and some Karma. And by the time we left, you you could walk down the street with no flak jacket on, and you were fine. So again, to see that change was amazing. I know you were part of it and know you had success in, you know, and and I just, that, that was a very rewarding time with an amazing team. So yeah, it was, it was great.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I mean, your total years you served 25, right? 25 years in. Yep. Give me, give me throughout this entire career that you had, give me either a best friend or a greatest mentor that you had.
1: Wow. That's a great question. Um, it's probably probably the greatest mentor um, it was was General Dunford, um, who just retired mm. as, as the chairman Joint Chief of Staff. And and some yeah. of the things he taught me, you know, I I got to meet him on my first deployment to Iraq, um, where he was chief of staff, and I was uh, working in the Intel Fusion Center. Um, but he he was and throughout my career, as I got selected for command on a couple of occasions and, and different times, I would reach out to him. And he always made time for me, always. Mm. And, you know, he was a general officer and I was, you know, at the time, you know, a lieutenant colonel or a colonel. And he had these super important positions and he would like block his calendar if he could and say, nope, uh, this is what's important. You know, mentoring the next generation is what's important. And he really and truly invested in that. And it it, it meant the world to me that he would make that time. I'll never forget... Um, this is, this is back to when I first met him in Iraq. We had a super hot um, like Intel report came in and I wanted to get it to him right away. And he was talking to some, you know, like Lance Corporal about like life and baseball. And I'm, you know, I think I have this thing that's so important. And I'm walking up and he's like, hey, wait five minutes. I'll get to you in a second. I'm like, sir, I have... This. And he's like wait five minutes. I'll get to you in a second. And he treated this Lance Corporal like that that he was the most important guy in the room, you know, and he treated everyone that way. And that I just learned so much from him uh, he, told, he told a great story about he walked into one of his commander's office one time and, and his desk was set up so that he wasn't looking at the front door and he didn't engage people. And he's like, what what are you doing here? You know, just it, the, he, he just emphasized that, that personal connection and taking the time to, you know, to mentor and train and engage with your leaders and and treat everyone the same. And that was fascinating. And I worked with some great leaders. I mean, I worked with General Mattis. I worked for General Scotty Miller as an army is still active and some fantastic folks, General Waldhauser. um, But Dunford stands out in just his willingness to take time and invest it in me personally and in in so many Marines.
0: Yeah. No, I remember his, uh, I think it was a short time he was ACMAC. Yeah. The assistant commandant, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I had an interaction with him and I just remember like soft voice. Uh, again, he I felt like I was the most important person in the room. Uh, I think I, I did a video for him or something and he gave me a coin, and it was like he gave me the coin, it wasn't like somebody from the staff, it wasn't like a, something that was in the mail. Like he came down to my office and made sure I had a coin. And uh, it's, it's you, you will remember stuff like that because you. you you remember that other people that don't do that and it sounds like that he has that he gained that leadership style from uh, from interaction of some it's amazing how much you can learn from people that uh, may not have the best leadership style you know, sure. and, and you can learn from that just as much as you can learn from. Oh,
1: a hundred percent. I think you learn more from bad leaders and good leaders often, like, um, you know, and you, you keep your notes, like, I'm never doing it that way. I'm never yeah. doing it that way. You know, I yeah. think you're right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, he, he one that certainly stands out to me, undoubtedly.
0: Absolutely. Um, I see in here a lot of 20 year or 30 year careers, not many at 25. Um, What was the impetus behind you leaving active duty? Uh, family, uh, to be candid.
1: But here, here's the deal. So, I had, um, I, I literally – I made it to colonel, which was shocking in its own right to so <laughs> many that knew me during my career. I was a little bit eccentric.
0: Um, I think every Marine, uh, when they get promoted, they're like, wow, I never thought I'd reach this. You know, at every rank.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I probably. I, I like to – I would tell you and most that know me probably would agree. I have uh, – a proclivity for costumes and some things that weren't very much <laughs> people thought I, I, you know, I was a little bit off the beaten path in some of my actions, but uh, you know, it's okay. It worked for me. It worked for yeah. me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I actually got 06 command, which was fantastic. So I literally had my change of command in the morning and I retired in the afternoon. Um, oh, wow. It was one of those things where I knew what the future was if I wanted to keep pushing forward and potentially, um, consider the opportunity or, you know, getting considered to, to be a flag officer. Um, but I, at the time, I had four kids. My daughter had just finished her freshman year of high school, and mm. it was uh, it was like you know it's time. And, and I I knew in my heart that it was just time. Yeah. Um. You know I wanted. I, I you know I would the the other option would have been you know heading to DC, moving probably a couple more times. And I'm like you know it's it's just it's time to settle down. I've done enough. I've done more than I ever thought I I could or would. Um. And I I, I was just done. I can It's hard to explain. when you know, you know. And then. And uh, I knew
0: <laughs> I think every veteran whether it be four years or, or or 30 they they just know when it's time to go you know what it was a good run yeah and and, and family is a big you know I uh, hats off to you for doing a 20 uh, even 20 with a full family eight deployments the um, hats off to your to your to your family for for, for going through just that um, so absolutely um, now you got out in 2014. I followed your lead there. Cause I got out in 2015. Uh, my wife and I even went to a job fair on Fort Lewis. And, uh, I even spoke with Amazon for a bit while I was exploring options in <laughs> Seattle <laughs> uh, nice. before I, before I turned around like the very next week. And I flew to Charlotte, uh, about three weeks into my transition <laughs> and I'm from Washington state, but the job was, you gotta go where the, where the opportunity was. Yep. Uh, my point is, is from that experience for me, it was a good time to get out. There was there was some good support in the, for the veteran community and economy wise, it was great uh, from my point of view. There were options. Did did you have the same feeling when you got out in 2014?
1: Well, I mean, I mean, my my, and I think for any veteran that's getting out, um, you have a couple decisions you have to make. Um, the one that I made was that I knew I wanted to come back to Tampa. That was that was like a non negotiable mm. piece of my transition. I didn't know, I didn't I knew I knew what I didn't want to do, which was go into the government contracting GS world. Yeah. I also knew that I wanted to be in Tampa. And then that, that, that helped me in a lot of ways it I guess in some ways it probably shrunk my opportunities, admittedly. But it did also help I like to think from the, the, the flip side of that, is it helped me narrow my job search dramatically. Um yeah. And then it was about networking, right? And kind of figuring out where you wanted to plug in. Um, so, you know, knowing I was coming back here, that was, that piece, again, that decision was made for my family. We came back to the house we had before um, where the, the kids had friends and we knew the neighborhood. And so that was easy. So that was all taken care of. So then it was easy for me to then focus just on the job search piece, which I did. So, I mean, I, I, probably maybe a little weird, but I actually enjoyed the job search piece and talking to people and getting out there and networking, you know, I I really enjoyed it, you know, and and, and I know many, I I talk to many folks in that space these days and many do not, but I was, I think I was also somewhat unique in that I had maintained a lot of my friendships from high school and college, you know, and I, I, the Marine Corps, which I, I loved it, but it didn't define who I was, Um, Which I think can happen to a lot of folks become, you know, I call it, you can get institutionalized, you know, the Shawshank Redemption Factor, right? You're somebody on the inside and you don't want to leave. Absolutely. I was was ready to leave. And I I, I had a network and I kind of, you know, relied on that to help me do the interviewing and and talk to folks and then eventually settle on that first job
0: um, after the Marine Corps. Yeah, no, I I totally understand about the institutionalization. Uh, When I first got out, I wanted to be as far away from the government as I could. Uh, You know, the VA was not my first gig because I didn't I didn't want that. And I, I you see you do see that in a lot of veterans. It was like, hey, the Marine Corps was the best year of my life, best years of my life. You know, we'll never get that back. And I'm like, dude, you're you're 28. Yeah, you know, you have so much ahead of you. Yeah, yeah, you so you could you could do the world is your oyster, you know. Yeah, uh, it's I I almost relate it to the the high school quarterback syndrome, you know. Um, you know, I I was a state champ, and 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 nothing will ever get will never will never top that. Hey, there's a whole world out there. Yeah, you know,
1: hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah,
0: I, I enjoyed it. What was your experience right after you got out? What was your first gigs?
1: I worked for a company called Custom Cable um, here in Tampa, a company that manufactured and installed fiber optic cable. Um, Pretty small company, had about two hundred and fifty people when I joined it. Um, It it was a great first job for me in that it allowed me to do a little bit of everything. Um, So I was basically the operations manager of a plant that manufactured and installed cable. Right, so we had a, 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 you know, we. We had a a, a manufacturing line there. Um, But I also got involved with sales and got involved with the budget and marketing and hiring and advertising. And uh, again, it just gave me a lot of latitude to learn in a relatively low stress environment. Um, Although I, I say that, the other thing you quickly learn is that in the real world, like there's a bottom line, and you have to you know make money to pay people. You know, so, you know the military you take for granted that you're going to get paid and the budget's there, and and you you kind of do these budget exercises, but the money kind of comes. And I don't know, yeah. it just it, it was, it was it's kind of a fairy tale land of how the budget and money works in the military compared to, you know, in the real world. If you don't sell and you don't deliver then people are going to get fired, right? So yeah. you better up your game and, you know, and and I, you learn that pretty quickly. And it went well. I mean, the, the job was, you know, we, the company did well and ended up being bought out a couple of years later. Um, but I, 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 again, I think it was, it was very valuable for me personally to be able just to learn. Um, and that was kind of the stepping stone for me to get to Amazon. Gotcha. how do you, how'd you find your way to Amazon? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. We were we, – we custom cable were actually doing install work in the two big fulfillment centers here in Tampa, TPA1 and TPA2. Um, okay. all, all the robots that are in the fulfillment centers run on Wi-Fi and fiber, right? So my guys are installing it. Um, and I started calling friends of mine at Amazon to see if I could sell them more cable. Basically, um, just going to LinkedIn, who's there, you know, and, and having those conversations. And uh, it, it coincided with... Um, so, at that same time frame, which was uh, 2016, in May of 2016, Jeff Bezos had gone to the White House and made a pledge to hire 25,000 veterans and military spouses. Um, So as I'm calling my Marine buddies that are at Amazon, they are looking for someone to bring on to lead their effort to deliver on the pledge that Jeff Bezos made, um, and and one thing led to another, and they decided to interview me, and, and and that was it, you know. So it's it was it was you know my my jump to Amazon was timing and who you know um, that would kind of the timing of it was they needed someone at the same time I was calling them, and just it's it's funny how that all works out, right? So yeah.
0: Got you. So you're now on the Amazon's military affairs team. Uh, how would you describe that team, and what is your role in it? You talked about recruiting.
1: Yes, yeah. So, um, so it's interesting. When, when, I, when I first got to Amazon, um, my role was, you know, in a very much in a kind of recruiting-facing, you know, customer. I uh, trying to find candidates, putting people into jobs role. Um, and I realized in this role that um, different pieces and parts of Amazon were engaging the military community, but it wasn't very coordinated. Um, hmm. And and the, we, we kind of, uh, several of us kind of realized we needed a centralized entity that could be all things as far as military engagement. So The creation of this military affairs team was a process that took a few years and now we have it in place. Um, And and the idea of this team, again, is that anything that Amazon does that touches the military community, we if we don't control it day to day, at least we're aware of it. So we're not showing up you know, um, fractured in the marketplace, right? That one division of Amazon's talking to you about this and somebody else is over here and we don't know what's going on and we look like we're disorganized, right? So- Got to
0: break down the stovepipes.
1: Exactly. And Amazon is, you know, really multiple companies inside of one. Your know, AWS is kind of this thing and ops is this thing. So you can have that if you don't have this centralized functionality. And yeah. our team in particular, it has three different pillars. So we we are, our team is led by uh, John Quintus, a uh, retired Air Force general. Um, And then within the team, there's three different pillars. One is focused on community engagement. So basically, how does Amazon market and brand itself um, to the military community and to military families? And, And who do we partner with when it comes to MSOs and VSOs? So that's the community engagement pillar. And some other things fall into that as well. Um, then we have a second pillar that's basically focused on work de- workforce development. So from point of hire forward, what do we do to make sure we're investing in those veterans that we bring into Amazon um, to give them a mentor, to give them training, to help them make that leap from the military to the civilian
0: world? It's going to be hard. I was gonna. I was gonna ask you about that because because I've had a I've had a lot of uh, corporate military affairs teams on board the battle. Uh, Danny Chung of Microsoft, John Buckley yeah. of Coke, uh, Gary Prophet of Walmart. Um, you know, Coke touted a, a robust a robust not just hiring but almost like a military battle buddy or camaraderie program. Microsoft has certain training programs that give certifications to active duty and veterans on military bases that help their transitions. In the entire in the not just for for Microsoft but for the entire software computer industry so you know I was going to ask you what what special wrinkle does your military affairs division do what what's some of the things that once you get on what, what what's the follow-on
1: yeah, it, it is. There's a, there, there's a assigned mentorship program. These are all things we're rolling out um, and started last year and are, are kind of really doubling down on in 2020. Um, that is a big piece of the mentorship, the training. And it's not only training the veterans that are coming in, maybe because they don't have um, some of the hard skills that we might need, whether it's, you know, in Excel or, you know, some, some type of a, a, a tangible thing. Like, hey, these are things you're going to need. Yeah. It's also how do we train Those hiring managers and those recruiters, and those just managers in general, that hey, you're going to have a veteran working for you, or you're going to be interviewing a veteran. These are things to consider about their background that are a little different. So, you know, it's about, I think there can be an unconscious bias that non-veterans have when it comes to veterans and what they perceive them to be, which is very often very different than the reality, right? So trying to address that unconscious bias and educating the non-veterans about, you know, what are some unique things that this person is going to bring to the table, right? And these are often non-traditional resumes you're seeing, right? They They didn't have the standard... I went from college to this entry-level job at a, you know, mar- a, whatever, a, a marketing company or whatever firm it was. And I got my MBA and now I want to come work at Amazon, right? This is – I was an infantry officer and I'd – you know, I mean, like – and I, then I was a recruiter. Like, what is this? I don't know. I went to a war college. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's this, this, – how do you translate that and make – Make those resumes more palatable or understandable, you know, and make sure that they the people understand what they're getting, the skill set they're getting. So that's yeah. uh, that's part of the training is not only for the veterans, but for the
0: the leaders that are non-veterans. Like within Amazon. So you're, exactly. you're basically given to through like a resume training course. Like, hey, if you see War College, it means leadership.
1: We try, and we try to be that that central repository of those things to be able to be that, you know, the Rosetta Stone of resumes, right? To say this is what this means and this is how we can help you get the right spot if you're a veteran and for that non-veteran to understand what those resumes mean. Yep. Very good. Very good. Very so good. That's, so that, that second pillar is workforce development. And then the, the third pillar within the team is talent acquisition. And that's the pillar I own. So I own the talent acquisition pillar. Um, I am not a recruiter per se. It's really about how do we build programs that we can target to bring in a wide variety of veterans in different roles. And and what I like to say is, no matter what your rank or MOS or NEC specialty, somewhere at Amazon, there's a job for you. And my, my job in particular is to create pipelines or programs of talent that can bring in You know, no matter again, you know whether it's as an apprentice or a more senior level, or into operations, or into IT, or into program management. How do we actually create programs or pipelines of talent to bring veteran talent into Amazon?
0: Hold on, wait. I mean, I mean, right now we're in the middle of COVID nineteen. You see all the unemployment numbers that are that are going on right now. Are you guys still hiring?
1: We're hiring like crazy. Yeah. it's. Uh, I mean, it's been, uh, you know, a, a, I say a blessing for Amazon, but obviously, um, as, as people can appreciate, Amazon has become a lifeline for folks, right? I mean, this, yeah. is, this is, you know, those folks that can't leave their house because they're um, at risk. Amazon has been what's been able to keep them, you know, functioning. So, they didn't have to go to the store, didn't have to engage with people. So, we have grown Rapidly. The initial pledge we made was to hire 100,000 people right away, and we've added 75,000 more to that. So, you know, um, this is uh, usually we we ramp up during the Christmas season, as you might imagine. we're, We're like, we're beyond that already now for what we would typically be. So the hiring has is, is continued and I don't see it letting up anytime soon. So again, if you're a veteran looking for a job, we are we are definitely in the market right now.
0: <laughs> the 25,000 in five years, I'm sure. Yeah, have you guys met that? I'm sure. We have. We have
1: met and exceeded that. We actually have over 30,000 veterans that work at Amazon right now and over 8,000 spouses that work at Amazon right now. So yeah, we, we, we've, we've surpassed that hiring number. And um, I don't know if we will making a new pledge anytime soon, Soon, but yeah, it's just it's, it, the, the, the great thing to see is, is the commitment that Amazon has made to hiring veterans. So there's, you know, there's over 20 people at Amazon that are full time dedicated to, you, you know, 100% of their job is focused on either recruiting or program management of veterans, and this is actually overseas as well. So it's uh, it's really gotcha. it's refreshing to see that it's, you know, we, to put your money where your mouth is when it comes to being a leader in this space and engaging with the military and military spouse community. So, I mean, that's that's the up and coming pieces. What do we do with military spouses as well? An underappreciated, you know,
0: segment of the military population in many ways. Speaking about the the military spouses, it seems like back in the 2014, 2016 timeframe, you know, I I mentioned uh, the other military teams that I've had on. I even had an intern. Uh, locked down and interview Joseph Pennington from Allstate, who has a, who they, ha- they have a military affairs team as well. But it seemed like around 2014, 2016 timeframe, these military affairs teams were like a new career path for veterans to come into. Um, there was a big push in the corporate world, like getting teams to, to help prep and assimilate veterans into the workforce. And at, at that time, veteran, veteran unemployment was pretty high. And it's probably again high again now with COVID nineteen, with the rest of America. But before COVID nineteen, veteran unemployment was pretty low, historically low. And if I remember right, there was there was a pivot to military spouses, like like what you were just talking about. I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, 2014, 2016, there was a big focus in corporate America to hire veterans. Has that slowed down or or come off as the like flavor of the week, or what was what's it like now?
1: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, 2014 time frame, there was clearly a um, an identified problem that, that veteran unemployment was well beyond that of non-veteran unemployment and yeah. the in the you know industry leaders got together and said hey we need to make an investment in veteran hiring and companies stepped up and you had you know you had the veteran job mission you know some t- some companies like jp morgan and some others got together and said hey we're, we, we at the corporate level are going to invest in veteran hiring and share best practices together and and you had the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Hiring Our Heroes piece come on and then that time. Yeah. And, you know, a big investment was made to focus on veteran hiring. And, and it made a massive impact, right? I mean, that the, the unemployment rate, rate went Plumited. down steadily um, to where it was below the average of, you know, the, the, the national average, right? Um yeah and, and then, I mean, I think what you saw about two years ago with people like, all right, we have this veteran thing pretty well, um, you know, handled, people understand how to deal, navigate that space. What's the, what's the next challenge. And that's when we realize Hey, military spouse unemployment or underemployment is, is really the next big thing that we need to figure out now. So how do we focus on the unique challenges often, um, of military spouse unemployment, right? Because the spouse, um, is going to be, is, is following that veteran around. So if they're going to yeah. Camp Lejeune or 29 Palms or whatever it may be. They're, they're, they may be, you know, someone that has a master's degree and all of a sudden the only opportunity for them is to work at Starbucks or whatever it is, right? Or a
0: call center, you call know, center, uh, right. personal experience from that. My wife went from having a million opportunities here in the, the DC area. And then we went to Jacksonville. Right.
1: And it happens all the time, right? So, you know, how do we from a, um, From almost a hiring mindset program, can we create more roles that are portable, that are flexible, that are remote? You know what? What, to, what do those spouses need, right? If they want to still stay, you know, as an active duty spouse in particular, what 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 can we do as companies to meet them where they are and tap into the skills they have? Because again, these are amazingly talented women or and men, but ninety-two percent um, women, um, ma- amazingly talented spouses that 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 just need the opportunity. So again, I think that's where the next frontier was. And a lot has been done in this space as well now, as we've started creating internships for spouses in addition to the veterans and a variety of things that we didn't have. Companies are now getting on board to kind of replicate, in some ways replicate, at least to to modify their veteran programs to make sure they include military spouses now.
0: Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Very good. I assume your team and I mean, Microsoft and Amazon are being two of the biggest players from my home state of Washington you your your military affairs team probably runs into their military affairs team uh, quite a lot maybe at the same conferences or meetings
1: i'm to say 100% and i think the one of the great things about being in the military space and and being in the different military affairs teams is that we do collaborate together all the time. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I I say, I will often say that, you know, Jeff Bezos signs my paycheck, but at the end of the day, I, I want to make sure I'm taking care of the veterans, whether they work for me and Amazon, or they work for Microsoft or work for, you know, Target, I, I, I want to get that veteran a job because not everyone's going to be a fit at Amazon, right? I mean, we're, yeah. I mean, we have a unique culture and Microsoft has its culture and, and companies have their own, JP Morgan has his own culture, right? So it's okay that I can't hire everyone. But we as a collective group need to be sharing best practices, sharing talent, doing what we can to ensure that we're putting that veteran in the place they're going to have the most success. And and that is something that is I think I've gotten a lot of enjoyment from is that everyone in this space – really feels the same way it's not about me and my company it's about us and the collective and how can we provide lift and share what we've learned good and bad like hey we tried this program man it, we didn't think it through very well this didn't work you know and have you what have you tried i'm like oh yeah that's a great idea and how can we you know learn from each other
0: to improve the collective and that's been a really rewarding part of the job Absolutely. I bring Danny up, one, because of the fellow Marine, two, he's my former CEO. Ah, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, That's fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's well, a great he, guy. Yeah. He was a, He was a CEO at the schoolhouse where when I was coming through with combat camera. Oh, nice. But now he said in his interview that after nine or 10 years of being out, he still hadn't felt that he had fully transitioned from the military. Do you feel the same way?
1: That's a great question. You know, I, I I think because I'm in a role where I deal with veterans every day, I feel pretty connected to the community. Still, I'll say this: when I worked for Custom Cable for those two years, I missed it. I, something was missing, and I didn't know what it was exactly. But it's that give back factor, that connection, and I, I didn't I didn't have it as you know that much and. Being on the military affairs team now at Amazon, it still gives you that sense of purpose that, you know, there's nothing better than getting an email or, you know, a LinkedIn message from someone that you helped that says, hey, thank you. For helping me get, you know, a job at Amazon, like, you know, so you, you feel like you're giving back still, you know, and that's sense of purpose. Uh, so I, so, so yeah, so I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily miss the military because I feel like I'm still connected enough. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to be in. Sure. But I'm happy to be connected enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, I th- I, I, yeah, I think I think Danny was 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 referring to the same thing. I don't think he'd want to put the uniform back on or anything, but I think he'd felt like, you know, there's still military aspects about his personality or about his, you know, his being. That it's like it will
1: always be part of you. That's yeah, all, it will yeah, always be one hundred
0: percent. Always part of you. So, yep. Abso- yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what is one thing that you learned in service that you carry with you today?
1: Wow, that's a great question as well. Um, I, I I think it's you know, and it's it kind of goes back to what we talked about with General Dunford. In um, it's in it's, but I. I don't know if I learned it from in service. I think it's always been part of me, but it was, it it came through during my time in service. It's what I say, being a man for others, right? And that's the core of what I felt, My leadership style was in the military, was Mm. to do what you can to put your Marines first, and if you take care of them, they will take care of you, and that was the leadership style that I tried to always have in the Marine Corps, and same thing at Amazon, right? I mean, that's just that's just that's kind of a way of life. So I mean, I think you know, it was I, I saw the fruits of it. In the military, and certainly is, is become part of my DNA now. Is to, you know, I, every day I get you know hundreds, some days of of LinkedIn messages and emails, and you just take you, you take the time to respond, right? It's like because c- you 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 know that that one person that's applying doesn't know you're having a bad day, but they just know they sense they know they know you're the Amazon, the face of military at Amazon, and if you don't reply, then they think Amazon stinks. Right, so yeah, I, I take the extra three five minutes and reply, you know, and and put them before you. Um, and again, that's the way I feel, and I think that that's something that's carried over is that is that sense of putting you know others before yourself.
0: Very good, very good. Um, Bo, is there a uh, is there a better nonprofit or individual that you've worked with or you've had experience with whom you'd like to mention?
1: There is actually. I, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm super passionate about the Travis Mannion Foundation. Mm.
0: Um,
1: Travis Travis Mannion was one of my Marines um, at, at was First he? Recon Battalion when he was killed. I was his CEO when he was killed. Oh so I am very very connected to the foundation and to his Travis's dad Tom, um, and you know and and the, and the whole foundation and Ryan Mannion who leads it is fantastic. So and and what and they are all about. Um, Giving back in the local communities, right? And if, you know, their, their mantra is "if not me, then who?" And that spoke to me yeah. um, from when you know, from Travis, that was what he said when when he jokingly talked about um, trying to get out of a deployment. You know, his 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 his, uh, his brother his yeah his brother-in-law basically said, "Hey, if I push you down the steps and you break your leg, you won't have to deploy." And Travis' reply was, "If not me, then who?" I've yeah. been doing the training. I'm the one who's prepared to do this. This is what I need to be, and that that concept is at the core of the Travis Mannion Foundation. And they have done so much with Gold Star families, and also educating um, folks on leadership. It's called the Character Does Matter campaign, and talking yeah. about character and going into local schools and teaching kids about character. Um, so that has been very personal to me. And I I, I actually lead. I'm the race director for the Travis Mannion Foundation. They do, they do a series of 9/11 runs across the country, and I, I, I host the one here in the Tampa area.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and his story was a, uh, you know, uh, the carry the load is is pretty close with the National Cemetery Administration, and that's how I learned Travis's story was. We feature him as a veteran of the day. Uh, we we have a veteran of the day every every day on VA social media. We we find one story, so we 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 honored Travis that way, and that's how I learned personally about his story. It's, 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 it's fascinating. And he was, I mean, he's just one of those guys that,
1: you know, he, he left an indelible impression on me. He's one of my lieutenants and he was just, uh, he was larger than life. And, um, you know, yeah. So, I mean, it's personal for me, but the story is amazing. And, and beyond that, the impact that the Traffin Foundation is having to this day is incredible. So, yeah, truly happy and proud to be part of that foundation.
0: Very good. Uh, Bo, uh, we've, we've covered a lot of ground, but is there... Is there anything that I may have missed or or didn't bring up that you think is important to share?
1: Uh, the, the only thing that I would add, I mean, in in my role as um, that that does focus on recruiting and engaging with the military, um, just some some advice for folks that are interested or are or, or looking into transitioning. Absolutely. Um, as as a guy that sees lots of resumes and talks to a lot of folks that are looking to get jobs anywhere, whether Amazon or anywhere, I mean, you know, the, there's a few few tips that I would share that I think would be hopefully helpful for folks. You know. First and foremost, as you're looking to transition, spend time figuring out what you want to do and talking to people. I I can't, you know, when when you're in the military, you are used to you know, basically the military, the Marine Corps will tell you where to go. Like you may have a, you may say you want to go here, here, and here. You might say you want to go to Australia and London, but you're going to 29 Palms or Korea or Camp Lejeune, and that's just how it's going to be, right? And yeah. you get used to that. And the I think- the needs of the Marine Corps. Needs of the Marine Corps. I mean, but, but you know, but that's which was great in the Marine Corps. But at Amazon or other companies, if you come to us and say I'll do anything anywhere, that to me means you haven't done your homework. And you're asking me to figure out what you wanna do. In Amazon's case, we have over 40,000 jobs. I have no idea what you want to do. So do your homework and spend some time figuring out what you want to do with that. You know, you want to be in operations, you want to be in program management, you want to be in IT maintenance, whatever it is. Spend some time really figuring out what you want to do and then research the jobs in whatever company it is identify what those quali- basic qualifications are for that job, and write your resume in a way that it makes it clear that you may meet those basic qualifications. And try to avoid, I see it all the time, writing in FITREP bullets, which what I call FITREP bullets. You know, You need mm-hmm. to talk about outcomes. So instead of saying, was responsible for the security management program of the command? Well, that's great that you were responsible for it, but did you do well? Did the program get better? Did it get worse? Did you, incidents go up, they go down? Give me some outcome. What were the outcomes of anything that you did? Because everything, and certainly at Amazon, in most places, we want to know the impact that you had, not just these fit rep bullets or OER bullets that are kind of generic. It's about outcomes. So, yeah. you know, match your resume with outcomes to the basic qualifications, and you will have a much better chance of being selected than if you don't. So, again, spend the time up front. That will help you a lot and help, it would help the company help you to be successful as well. And I, you know, again, I think folks, a lot of people provide a lot of different guidance on resumes, and I, I won't go into that too much. But again, just make sure you really, if a job says, um, you know, five years experience, the program manager required and you don't have it, then don't apply, you know, make sure you meet those basic qualifications and tailor your resume to show and highlight that you actually do meet whatever it says you got to do.
0: Long intro, long interview. You guys don't need an ad this week. Um, I want to thank Bo for seeking us out and coming on the show. For more information on Bo and his post-military career, visit amazon.com forward slash military. Our Born in the Battle Veteran of the Week was featured by our VA social media team's Veteran of the Day program. You know, every day our social media team features a veteran. They tell their story on blogs.va.gov and feature them on all of our social media platforms. You can also email and nominate a veteran by writing in to newmedia at va.gov. So our Born the Battle of the Week, you know, personally, I can also attest to how hard this Marine was because I interviewed him about a decade ago for a video. He walked into the interview wearing an immaculate dress blue uniform, you know, ribbon stacked to the gills. And to me, when I looked him right in the eye, I was met with one of the steeliest and firmest eyes that I've ever locked on with in my life. And I realized right there that this Marine is one of the hardest Marines that I'm ever gonna meet. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is a Marine Corps veteran, Kurt Chu N. Lee. Lee was born in San Francisco, California in 1926. His family immigrated from China earlier in the 1920s. In 1944, Lee joined the Marines at the age of 18, and he went to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, where he learned Japanese. Lee did not get a chance to go to the Pacific as he was retained at the depot to be a language class instructor, but by the time the war ended, Lee was already a sergeant. Fast forward five years, Lee was a first lieutenant when the Korean War started. He was the first non-white officer and the first Asian American officer in the Marine Corps. He was the OIC for 1st Platoon Company B, 1st Battalion, 7th Marine Regiment. And deployed with his Marines in September of 1950 to Korea. Lee, in his interview with me, self-described himself as a stickler for discipline. I remember he said he wanted to dispel the notion about the Chinese being weak. And that he did not expect to survive the war. And in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, he said the same thing. He intended his death to, and I quote, to be honorable and be spectacular. Lee also told me that during the ship ride to Korea, his platoon sergeant came up to him and said, and I quote, if this were stateside, half your men would be over the hill, but the other half would follow you to hell. To which Lee replied, well, everybody's going to follow me to hell. See during this time, Lee was fighting two wars, one against Korea and another with the attitude of some of his Marines who questioned his loyalty. At the Battle of Inchon, those questions were quickly put to rest on november 2nd 1950 lee's unit came under attack by chinese forces who sent aid to north koreans retreating from incheon lee directed a counterattack, and while wearing a bright orange roguard guard vest in the snow so his men could see him as well as everybody else lee single-handedly advanced upon the enemy front he shouted in mandarin please don't shoot i'm chinese to confuse the enemy At the same time, Lee personally advanced and attacked foxholes one by one to draw their fire and reveal themselves as he instructed his men to fire on the flashes that appeared. Already wounded in the leg, he would be shot in the elbow by a sniper and evacuated to a mass unit for treatment. Upon learning that he was about to be sent to Japan to recover, Lee and another wounded Marine confiscated a jeep, located his unit, and rejoined them on their way to the Chosen Reservoir. At the Chosen, Lee's platoon was ordered to spearhead a thrust to relieve a company of Marines who was surrounded by Chinese forces. Lee, with his arms still in a cast, led his platoon in the attack from the top of hills, not the roads like the enemy suspected. Advancing through heavy enemy fire and eventually forcing their way to the stranded Marines. Again, Lee was shot and again he refused to leave, regrouping his men to secure a vital roadway. On December 8, 1950, Lee was targeted by a Chinese machine gunner, seriously wounding him and ending his Korean War service. For his actions at Incheon, Kurt Chu and Lee received the Navy Cross. And for the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, he also received a Silver Star. But many of his men have gone on record that Lee should have been awarded the Medal of Honor. Kurt Chu and Lee would go to live on a full life. And in 2010, the same year that I interviewed him, his story was the subject of a Smithsonian Channel full-length documentary titled Uncommon Courage, Breakout at Chosen. Sadly, Kurt chu En Lee, Marine Corps legend, would pass away on March 3rd, 2014 at the age of 88. We honor his service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can... Just send an email to podcast at VA.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, RallyPoint. DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for spending time with us. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care.